0: Once upon a time, we had to hunt or forage for our meals. We didn't have refrigerators. We couldn't eat 24 hours a day. And we might actually go a couple of days without eating, right? If we, if we couldn't find something to eat, we might have to keep looking. And if that situation occurred, and after a day, we were sort of, we couldn't think, and we couldn't react, and we were just a mess, we would never have found that next meal. And as a species, we wouldn't have survived.
1: And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to wealth. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Where are you? I'm in the closet. Where are you? In the closet. Awesome. All my clothes from 1997 (laughs) that I need to get rid of desperately because because no one sees you and no one cares. Because no one sees me, no one cares. And oh, P.S., you're not. 20 anymore. No, I know. I have a few, I have a few pieces in here that suggest aging in a graceful way. Yeah. <laughs> like, my class suggests I need to do a little bit more embracing where we are today <laughs> of the changing tides. Yeah. Now we could talk about what to wear when, or we could talk about what to eat when. Ooh, look at that segue. Like yeah. it good transition. Thanks. That's a I, transition. How are you going to transition? Yeah, we just had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael Krupain, who is the medical director of The Odd Show, among many other things, but he and his partner co-authored a book called What to Eat When, and it's a cookbook with amazing recipes, all about when to eat and then what to eat. Yeah, we, we talked a bit more with him about specifically, um, eating in certain windows for weight loss. And I mean, this is not, you know, news at this point that we're all learning, I think, in, in a good way that, you know, it does matter when you eat and intermittent fasting it certainly plays a big role in that. And people are very familiar with that concept now, but they're kind of breaking it down into, more specifics about you know it's not just about the window that you're eating, but it's also about which types of food you're eating during that window and whether it's better to have calories or uh, carbohydrates at the beginning or the end it's pretty tactical and you know super helpful and and relevant information I think for most people yeah I mean it works for me. I have to say eating late just sucks it's not a good formula for me yes. um, they, yeah, everything they say the general uh, the general idea is to eat. Breakfast like a king, yes. Lunch like a popper. No, no, no. no. Sorry, the prince. Sorry. Eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. Yes, which is a great a great way to remember, and yes. it is very helpful. Yeah, and it's really it's a beautiful book too. There's lots of amazing photography and great recipes in here, and you know I think their approach is it's a little refreshing in that there's a lot more. They encourage you eating rather than eliminating. Uh, I think there are so many diets and, and fads out there right now that you know are eliminating entire food groups. And for the most part, you know this whole list with a few exceptions that we dove into in in, in the conversation. But it's pretty it's pretty universal and it's just kind of common sense based. Like plant based makes sense. Limit your meat and you know saturated fats, and you will probably see some good results. All right, well, we're going to stop talking now. Go ahead and just play the darn episode. Yeah, Um, I'm going to stop talking and go finish my eating window. I'm going to go cook some eggs and coconut oil. (laughs) (laughs) Take it away, doctor. (laughs) We love giving you ad-free episodes, but you're going to have to listen to this one real quick. Because this episode is brought to you by us. Yes, our brand new brand, Earth and Star, is taking your daily habits like cold brew and matcha and elevating them with adaptogens to give you some ridiculously healthy benefits. Benefits such as cognitive function, calm, stamina, and a huge boost to your immune system, which I think we can agree we all need right now. Our super convenient, ready-to-drink lattes are 100% certified organic, and plant-based, made with, what else? Rothy oat milk. Is there any other kind of oat milk today? I don't think so. No packets or tubs or clumpy, weird powder that no matter how much you try to mix it, it never seems to dissolve. Just a delicious little can of magic. We've got all the flavors. We've got cold brew coffee, matcha, turmeric, cacao, which is basically adult chocolate milk. And we are adding 2,000 milligrams, that is no small dose, of functional mushroom extracts like lion's mane and chaga to basically upgrade your everyday habit into a kick-ass functional latte. Kick-ass. Kick-ass. Available at earthandstar.com. Take 15% off with the code HTW at checkout. Earth and Star Mushroom Lattes amazing taste. Healthy as Welcome, Dr. Michael croupain We have your book, The What to Eat When Cookbook, which uh, we understand is kind of a sequel to the What to Eat When book. So now you're giving us all your amazing recipes and, and uh, secrets. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I guess to dive in first, I think we'd love to hear just a little bit more about you and your background. You were just saying a, a few minutes ago that you know you're the, the healthy eating guy, and uh, you're a young guy. Maybe you actually are you know thirty years older than you look, but you certainly look like you haven't been in the business that long. So what what is your background, and, and how did you arrive at both the medicine and food, and the kind of the intersection of both?
0: You know, I went to medical school, and my original plan was to become a neurosurgeon because I really loved working with my hands and the brain. And when I did neurosurgery residency for a couple of years, I kind of was unsatisfied with that. It didn't really um, meet all my interests. I was really interested in cooking and food and agriculture and really in helping people and the connection between the mind and the body and everything, sort of the whole person. And as a neurosurgeon, I felt kind of very limited in that. And most of the people I dealt with were already very sick and we could make a significant impact on them. But by the time they got to us, it was usually pretty late. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to do something uh, more upstream and eventually found my way to preventive medicine, which is uh, a public health specialty, really, where we deal with populations and trying to keep them healthy. And I really, I went to Hopkins to do that residency. I got my master's of public health. And I chose Hopkins because I was really interested in the intersection of food and agriculture policy right so what we eat and how we grow our food and the policies around that and uh, after that program i finished my program i went and i worked at consumer reports where i ran our food safety program there where we looked at contaminants in the food supply and so it was a cool place because it was a media organization and an advocacy organization consumer reports is a nonprofit. so we got to my first project was working on arsenic and rice and mm-hmm. my job was to Figure out what is what Consumer Reports found. What does it mean for po- population health? What does it actually mean for people? And then what do we need to do about it? And so we were, with my first couple weeks there, we were sitting in the FDA in a room filled with twenty or thirty FDA officials, telling them what we found and what we thought they should do about it. And then they actually did something. So it was really amazing. <laughs> is, uh, and then we looked at lots of other things. <laughs> we looked at uh, pesticides and produce, you know, anything that kind of affects health and was related to food. And worked on the, on the policy components. And then. I was there for a couple of years and then Dr. Oz called me up and asked me to come work at the Dr. Oz show running the medical unit where uh, my job is to make sure what Dr. Oz says is accurate and run our public health campaigns and interface with medical societies and the government. So it all kind of fit together because I love food, I love cooking, I love public health, I love the media and keeping giving people messages about how to keep them healthy. And then Mike and I started working together and we wrote uh, What to Eat When and now the What to Eat When cookbook. And um, that's where we are today.
1: Very cool. Are you based in New York or where?
0: Y- yes, I'm based in New York.
1: Nice. Okay. So can we just dive into the sort of overview and the rules of what to eat when and what is, what is the general idea here?
0: Sure. Yeah. So what to eat when is, is really, uh, to me, it's a cool book. It's kind of changed my life working on it. I was always interested in, to a peripheral degree, like when, how when you eat matters. But I was more interested in saying, eh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? When I was a kid, my mom always made me breakfast and said it was the most important meal of the day. And I was like, eh, that's not so, such a big deal. And I never really was into it. And then when I was actually in a neurosurgery resident, I, my first rotation as a resident was on night float. That's where you work overnight and you sleep all day. So sort of the night shift. And I got into the habit starting then of eating a really big meal at around 5 or 6 o'clock at night. And then going to work and then coming home, being really tired and going to sleep. So, just eating once a day and, and eating at night. And I had that habit for the next 15 years. So, I was always, again, so I was interested in it, but sort of thought it was uh, when you eat didn't matter, but that you didn't need to really eat breakfast. You didn't need to eat three meals a day. That, you know, like there was something to fasting. It was interesting. Anyways, and we started digging into the science and discovered, well, there actually is a lot of recent research in this area. And it's sort of not what I expected, and also what I expected, right? So what we what we learned is that really, when you eat is important because it all has to do with your circadian rhythm, and your circadian rhythm is your body's clock, and its job is really to get your body ready to do the right thing at the right time, and that's so that your body runs efficiently. Um, because once upon a time, you know, we we had to be more efficient than we are today because we didn't have all the modern technology that we had, and so our body actually sets. Uh, our metabolism up. Our metabolism changes throughout the day. Our way our skin works changes throughout the day. Obviously, our hormone cycles change throughout the day. Everything changes throughout the day. Everything's on a clock. And our metabolism, again, is also on this clock. And our body is sort of set up better for our metabolism to work better at certain times than others, right? So our body actually expects us to eat during the day when the sun is up. The sun is also what sets our circadian rhythm and expects our body to fast at night when it's dark and we're supposed to be sleeping because humans still haven't figured out how to eat while they're asleep so i'm sure (laughs) people are working on it (laughs) Uh, and so and so the idea there is uh, again that our body is more efficient if we eat during the day less efficient if we eat during the night and we can get into that more in any degree that you. i I would like to
1: get into it i mean right right, like
0: uh, yeah. So, so there's a. So if we dig in a little deeper, a couple of things are happening, right? So there's something called the respiratory quotient, which is something we learned about in medical school, which is sort of a, a measure of the kind of fuel your body is using. So you could be using carbohydrates for fuel. You could be using fat for fuel. Those are the main two fuel sources, right? And depending on what your respiratory quotient is, it kind of tells you which is your preference at that when just measured. So your respiratory quotient actually changes throughout the day. And so your body, is set up, again, set by the sun, to eat more carbohydrates during the day when you're supposed to be eating and to be using fat at night when you're supposed to be fasting because fat is a storage form of energy, right? And it, and if you were um, not eating like an insane amount of carbohydrates during the day, at night you would actually get into those fat stores mm-hmm. and use that throughout the night. Does that make sense?
1: That makes total sense, yeah. I feel like I've always kind of understood that, or that was like the the information that I had. And then I think, you know, over the past few years, and maybe you'll you'll correct me here too. But the the idea was like your fat load should be in the morning and like right when you wake up. Like your your breakfast should be so fatty. And I feel like I've talked to so many functional medicine doctors about this, mm-hmm. and it's like that's where it should all happen. Your brain is just like on fire and like burning all these calories and it's like craving fat. And then, you know, later in the day you can start introducing some slow carbs or whatever, but I've always, I don't know. I've always like been, I've I've been on the opposite where I want to eat sort of fattier foods at night and then throughout the day.
0: Well, so I'm not, I'm not saying you should eat fatty foods at night.
1: No, no, no. no. I, but you know what I mean? Like I, I will have like fish or avocado or something along those lines as opposed to like, you know, um, whatever, some carb heavy, like a bowl of pasta
0: at night. Yeah. Well, that, that, and that's good. You, sh- you should, you should eat. I mean, the idea is that you eat more of your carbs early and less later, but the, actually the whole big principle is you eat, you eat more early in general and you eat right. less later. So we, we say you should get about, uh, 75%, let's say of your calories before 3 PM. Mm-hmm. And so you're making breakfast and lunch your biggest meals of the day and dinner are the smallest. Now this is kind of seems like a little different than where I started off where I was saying, you know, my first principle was maybe breakfast isn't so important. And now I'm saying you should eat more early mm-hmm. and less later. And it really doesn't matter uh, if it's breakfast or lunch or, you know, like you know, putting the labels on your meals or exactly when you eat them. Just in general, you should eat more earlier in the day and less later. So I got uh, I was never a breakfast person. So, I can understand if people don't want to eat breakfast, but as you I actually change the time that you eat, you actually appetite changes. There's research to support this, and lots of experience from people. Mm-hmm. So now that I make breakfast and lunch my biggest meals of the day, when I wake up, I'm a lot hungrier than I used to be mm-hmm. uh, than yeah. what I never did.
1: But so okay, so this the idea here is I, I understand in terms of the you know the times of day, but how how directly does this correlate with this concept that we're now a bit more familiar with as a culture of intermittent fasting, which is to say, you know, you have your window and some people are on a 12 hour window, which is not really necessarily a fast, I guess. And some go as far as 16 or even 20, um, which seems totally extreme and insane to me. But that's also because I like food. And that just seems like a very small percentage of the day to do something quite so pleasurable. But is this is, is this exactly the same thing? Because parts of it sounds very similar, and then parts of it sound a little counterintuitive to me. Because the sun is up at seven a.m., but if your window is saying you know you're not eating after six p.m., then you're not supposed to eat again until ten. So how do those two things agree and disagree?
0: Yeah, they they tie together nicely. I think that the concept of eating with your circadian rhythm ties into fasting because, as I said again, our body expects us to be not eating at night, so that's that's a fast and. What we say is you should eat with the sun, so because your circadian rhythm is actually set by the sun. And again, I think sort of think a little bit prehistorically, maybe. if we go back, once upon a time, we didn't have lights, we didn't have refrigerators. You know? so we couldn't eat 24 hours a day. We had basically had to eat mostly when the sun was up. That's when we ate most of our calories,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or we should have, because that's when it was possible. and it was harder to do at night and we had to, you know protect ourselves from predators and, and such. And so our body, that's how our body evolved to be, to expect us to eat that way and to be efficient to eat that way. So the window that you eat ideally is with the sun and that changes throughout the year. But to make it simple, yeah, we say, you know, try to eat in that 12 hour window, try to eat not after it gets dark. And if you can extend that window, like in the winter, if you're cool with it and you can extend that to 14 or 16 hours, that's great. But twelve hours is pretty good. A lot of this research comes from animals, but so it all comes from animals, really. Or it starts with animals. So when you, when you um, mice or rats, they have an opposite uh, life of us, right? They come out when it's dark and they uh, go to sleep when it's light, and so it's the same rules just flipped upside down. So they, when they study them, they they mess with their light and dark cycle, and they find that if if they provide them with food like high fat a high fat diet, let's say, throughout twenty four hours. Um, they'll gain weight, especially if they're eating during the period where they're supposed to be sleeping. But when they restrict them to only eat in their window, they don't. Hmm. And the same thing when with like fruit flies is a great example. You wouldn't think fruit flies were that interesting, but they actually are. <laughs> when you feed a fruit fly twenty four hours a day, they age and they eventually and they die pretty quickly, relatively speaking. When you limit the time that they have their food to twelve hours, they fly better for longer. They just look like younger fruit flies, and again, same concept. where we're getting the yeah, idea of <laughs> Yeah, so we get the idea for intermittent fasting, and so it kind of ties together. Now, in in my in our view, we, you should have that window. Like what I used to do when I was a resident was the wrong way mm-hmm. to do it. I, I fasted all day and I ate at night. Right? I should have been doing the opposite. I should eat as little at night as possible or nothing. Sometimes now, I if I have a big breakfast and a big lunch, I don't hungry at night? I don't eat at night, mm-hmm. so I can stop eating by three or four o'clock. We're not telling you you have to do that, but if you make that dinner a small meal and it's earlier rather than later, you're yeah. going to get that twelve hours in. And if that twelve hours corresponds to seven a.m. or eight a.m. or nine a.m., that that's fine. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But ideally, with the sun.
1: But yeah, so this yeah. is like as it compares to intermittent fasting. This is sort of a mini fast, and then if you want to occasionally or intermittently, you know, fast longer you can it'll have sort of different effects but this is sort of like an everyday kind of mode that you're
0: supposed to be in yeah and there's also as you kind of say there's a lot of ways to intermittent fast you know there's the uh fasting mimicking diet right where you will fast for four days or five days a month every couple of months right and then there's people who fast every other day and lots of schemes this is sort of a lifestyle where you are Building a fast into your daily life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've totally felt it. I've actually described it because my husband is a super late eater, and uh, and and I would call him a horrible morning person. <laughs> um, and I think that those two things are connected, but he does not. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. Like I've really, I've really noticed over the years. Like if I eat late, and you know, sometimes that means like after seven, or sometimes it means like ten. It's almost worse than a hangover for me. Like it feels in the morning, like I'm so slow and so groggy, and just like do not feel mentally or physically sharp at all. So it's very interesting. the 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 problem for me sometimes, and maybe other people have this, is like if you have children, if you have young children, and you have this sort of like super early dinner at like five o'clock. And then around eight o'clock, you want to eat dinner again or nine o'clock because you're starving. Do you have children? No. No. Erica, all right. Well, I'm not talking. To, well, if anyone who's listening has children has experienced this, please share your stories.
0: Yeah, I think what you'll find again is if you, if you do it consistently, yeah. you won't feel hungry again. Yeah, If you actually eat at th- that time, it, it becomes sort of a habit that you're used to eating at that time. Your body is used to that. You've changed that habit. Your body adjusts. Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, what's byla? I mean, we know kind of what's happening when you fast, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the sort of cleanup mode while while we're in that zone while we're sleeping, you know, sundown to sunrise and not eating? Like, why is that so restorative?
0: Yeah. Well, so we don't know exactly, but there's a couple of ideas we can we can go over, right? So, one of them has to do with uh, well, it all kind of ties to insulin. And so let's start, let's start with that. It's something I should have explained before too. The other thing that your me- metabolism does throughout the day when it's changing is actually your body's insulin resistance changes, right? So we know about insulin resistance. If you have diabetes, you're insulin resistant. That means your cells, when they see insulin, don't react the same way and don't take glucose, the sugar, up out of your blood. Does that, that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, so throughout the day, you become more and more insulin resistant. And this, again, kind of goes with what we were talking about, changing your metabolism and the type of fuel you're using. So the more sensitive to insulin you are, the better you're going to use that carbohydrate uh, that you're eating early. And the more resistant you are, the more it's going to accumulate in your blood and cause problems and promote fat storage instead of fat burning. So again, when you sort of eat your carbohydrates and eat more early and less later, you are accumulating less stores of uh, glucose and glycogen in your blood and having less insulin resistance at night, which is helping to promote fat burning and better fat storage, which should be a metabolically favorable thing to do. The other concept here, which is one of the theories of why intermittent fasting may work and, and eating like this may work, is the concept of switching, what's called flipping the metabolic switch. So our normal preferred fuel source is carbohydrates or sugar, glucose, all the same thing but our body can obviously burn fat and that's called ketosis, right? Not everybody knows about ketosis. So when you, if you use up all the carbohydrates in your body, you start burning ketones, right? Fat, and that's ketosis. And, the, and you can do this just through intermittent fasting if you don't have too much of a carbohydrate load, right? So if you eat like cake all day, you're not going to burn through all your carb stores. But if you eat sort of your carbs for breakfast and you exercise throughout the day, after 16 hours, you could potentially be in ketosis. So that's why I always think that not like the super, super ketosis of someone on the keto diet who never eats carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. but a mild form of ketosis. The idea is that when you do this switch of fuels, you flip this metabolic switch, which activates all kinds of protective factors for your body. It Activates things like BDNF, which protects the brain. When they, when they model strokes in animals, they, they occlude an artery in a, in a rat, let's say in the, in the, the, Delivers blood to the brain. If they do that in a fasting rat, the stroke that the rat has is much smaller than if they weren't fasting. And that's again because probably this flipping this metabox, which releases all these protective factors that are there for healing, repair, and and really protection, as I said, uh, to help you. So, and the idea here, again, if we go back to our thinking historically or prehistorically. Once upon a time, we had to hunt or forage for our meals. We didn't have refrigerators. We couldn't eat twenty-four hours a day, and we might actually go a couple of days without eating. Right? If we we couldn't find something to eat, we might have to keep looking. And if that situation occurred, and after a day we were sort of we couldn't think and we couldn't react, and we were just a mess, we would never have found that next meal. And as a species, we wouldn't have survived. So our body had to develop these protective mechanisms so that we could stay sharp and we could be better so that when we could find that next meal and survive.
1: That makes a sense. So... It does make sense. And then I guess where you guys are going with it or where this whole sort of shift in general is going with it is to apply these rules and principles to our modern lives, which is easier said than done because there are obviously all sorts of obstacles and challenges that didn't once exist in those you know, in those days. But I, I mean, I want to drill down a bit more into just the goals here because I feel like it's, it's interesting that there are, you can read just as many stories about People doing intermittent fasting, or in this case, you know, figuring out what to eat one for weight loss, as for weight optimization, as for a general body hacking experience. So how do how do all of these multiple goals? And I know we're going to speak to um, your partner and co-author uh, in a separate conversation and focus more on the longevity piece. But if we're speaking about weight specifically, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering how does it work where. You can do essentially employ the same tactics uh, for weight loss as opposed for as opposed to for like weight maintenance or potentially even you know the the appropriate type of weight gain. Like, how do all of these things somehow work using the same methodology?
0: Yeah, well, it's complicated, and uh, again, I don't think we totally understand all of the reasons. But there's some interesting research that can maybe point us in slightly the right direction, and a lot of it's what we've already talked about and kind of tying it together. So. There's some interesting studies. Well, basically weight loss, right? Has to do with calories. I know people sometimes don't like to think about it, but you know, it has to do with energy balance. And if we use more energy than we take in, we're going to lose weight. And if we use the same amount of energy we take in, we're going to maintain our weight. And if we take in more energy, we're going to gain weight. But what, so it's all about calories in and calories out, but it's more complicated than that because actually a calorie isn't always a calorie. Which is sort of the, the surprising thing, and something I've, I've sort of again in the past wouldn't have said, but the research shows that that's not the case. So you know, there's the main way to look at that with our circadian rhythm is to look at some studies that suggest that when you eat that calorie, it makes a difference, and it gets back again to our insulin resistance and all the things that are going on in our body. The way we process those calories at one time may be different than another time, and there's two really interesting human studies they're not huge they're small studies but they're looking at uh, people on a, a calorie restricted diet one was in spain and, w- and one was in the us in a spanish study they had people eat a certain number of calories and they looked at when they ate those calories and they basically divided the group up into two into two groups those who ate those calories before 3 p.m. and those who ate those calories after 3 p.m. right so in spain lunch is the largest meal of the day traditionally They might eat late into the night, which they shouldn't do, but they're getting the majority of their calories early, uh, traditionally. And so in the group that ate their lunch early, as opposed to later, they lost 20% more weight than the group that ate it late, even though they ate the same foods and the same number of calories. Hmm. And there's another study in the U.S. where there was much more prescriptive, where they basically said you have to eat 1,500 calories a day, and everyone's going to eat the same size lunch, but we're going to switch the breakfast and the dinner. So one day so one group's gonna have a seven hundred fifty calorie breakfast and a two hundred fifty calorie uh dinner and the other's gonna have the opposite the big the big uh, dinner and the small breakfast mm-hmm. and say so, so it's, uh, something very similar even though
1: do they have the same time frame i mean obviously was that like an obvious control to say like dinner is at you know seven
0: uh you know i they had it in the general yeah. early versus yeah, you know, I don't know if they had it, ex- probably I'm sure they didn't eat it exactly the same time, but they had dinner in the evening and breakfast in the morning, right? And they had these totally different slops of the number of calories. And they saw something very similar, which was, again, about a 20% difference in weight loss. Even though each group ate exactly the same number of calories, those that ate their calories earlier lost more weight than those that ate it later.
1: And is it, I mean, can you reduce it to something as simple as you just have more time to burn it off? Or is there something more complex going on there?
0: Yeah, again, I think it's, it's, it's I think it's something more complex. And this, again, has to do with your metabolism is different, right? You're processing those foods differently. Uh, again, back to the animal studies, when we, when we restrict the time in which animals can eat, they don't, and we feed them that high-fat diet, they may not gain that weight, or they'll gain weight uh, less easily. Than, than the animals that uh, can eat whenever they want. Something about limiting that window and making that window earlier rather than later has this positive effect right. on the way you and process food.
1: How different is it from, I imagine it has to be different for men and women. I, I was mean, I'm just, just about to ask that exact question. I okay. mean, there's,
0: there's probably some difference, but...
1: Um, In general, has a di- it is different for men and women, right? I mean, yeah. I think we talk about keto.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, there's not a lot of data on that looking at men and women, they you know in the studies, it's either looking at men or looking at women, or we're looking at both. So there's not a huge amount of human data here, but I would, I believe that there's not going to be a sort of, sort of theoretically, based on the principles, it's not going to be a huge difference because our bodies and our circadian rhythms, the principles of them are the same. Right. Our metabolism's change throughout the day in a, in a similar manner. So some people, everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to have a bigger effect or a smaller effect. It's going to work. It's not going to work. But for all of us, it should work in the same manner. If that yeah. makes sense. The other thing get at, sort of to answer your question which is really interesting and and sort of, again sort of cutting edge but you know still being flushed out is the importance of the microbiome, right? So the microbiome actually changes throughout the day as well. So the mic- the ki- types of things that your microbiome does during the day are sort of associated with energy metabolism and and running your body during the day, right? And the stuff that your microbiome does during the night is more associated with detoxification and repair and, and things that you would expect to happen at night. So there's this group in Israel that does this fascinating work on the microbiome where they, in animals, they jet-lag the animals basically. So they change their cycle mm-hmm. so that they seem jet-lagged. And then they, a jet-lag animal in this study will gain weight when you feed them the high-fat diet and a non jet lagged animal won't, right? And then they took their microbiome, they sort of did like a microbiome transplant and transplanted those bacteria into the non-jet lag mice. So they took the jet lag bacteria and put them in the non-jet lag. And those bacteria, mice that got the transplant now gained weight, just like they were jet lag. So there's probably, again, something going on in our microbiome when we're eating out of sync with our circadian rhythm. Right which is contributing to this, either helping us gain weight or lose weight or maintain weight as well.
1: God, we just know nothing as it turns out. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so s- shocking to me that even the microbiome is like, it's so recent. I mean, we're just now talking about something that
0: is proven to be so hugely important. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Microbiome is interesting just as an aside. We we'll probably want to cut this out, but just so yeah. you guys know. like, No. Uh, the microbiome is something in humans just feels very recent, but in animals, it's what they've always studied, right? So, like, if you think about factory farming or raising animals in confinement, uh, the way they feed them and the way they, you know, give antibiotics and all those drugs is meant to change the microbiome so that those animals gain weight faster. Oh. So, so they've been studying in animals for forever, and now we're just don't realizing it, it
1: like that. Yeah, they definitely don't. They don't pitch it like that. It's more just. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, how did they screw up? How did they intentionally screw up the animals' microbiome?
0: Well, they feed animals antibiotics and ionophores, so drugs that'll change the type of bacteria that are in the microbiome. They do it for two reasons. They do it to protect their GI tract because when they're some, if you're talking about a cow, let's say if you're feeding them a high corn diet that changes the pH of the of their uh, stomachs, and so they need to be protected from ulcers and things, but also it can change the types of bacteria in there. So they, they, the ones that develop are the ones that are really good at extracting the energy from that corn so that the cows get more of it so that they gain weight faster.
1: Wow, like a bonus. Wow. <laughs> um, disgusting. So we've talked a bit about when to eat and I want to go into what to eat because you got so many... Recipes and recommendations. Your book. I have one more question about when, because you kind of started off talking about it, and I think it's probably a question that a lot of people have, given the current state of our workforce. What do you do? I mean, what do you recommend for the people that work night shifts that really do need to actually have you know this type of help or or get on this program, but their circadian rhythms are intentionally disrupted?
0: Yeah, you know what? There is not a lot of good data to advise people around the night shift. And so we actually don't have a section on that in the book. So the, the idea is that those people need to try a lot of times gaining weight when you work the night shift. Have you guys worked the night shift?
1: Not in not since the days where it was very hard to gain weight, and I'm very (laughs) maybe since like uh, bartending days. That was consider that the night shift.
0: All right, well, so there's some. So that's a good example too. Uh, There's things that happen during the night, right? That uh, and availability of food at night is not so good, right? So if you're working in a hospital or in a or in a bar, like you're not going to be able to get healthy food during the night, right? There's going to be fried food or snacks or pastries or things that aren't so good for you right um so pro- the best thing for the night shift is to try to eat your main meal before your shift bring healthy snacks with you and have a light maybe a light meal in the morning but really to focus on that time during your shift that you're not mindlessly eating that you have something if you're if you get hungry that's not uh you know just loaded in sugar and and fat right just
1: maybe okay. like focus on like foods that digest very quickly and easily? I mean, just like fruits and vegetables? Yeah, I mean, definitely having fruits
0: and vegetables during a shift is a great great idea.
1: (laughs) Well, so let's use that as the segue into what to eat because you definitely have a ton of recommendations. I do have some questions about certain recommendations because it's not... You know, there's so many different dietary protocols these days, and whether it's you know grain free or gluten free or high dairy or low dairy or you know FODMAPs or like leptins and lectins. What? So, what is the general food philosophy that you guys are bringing, and what does that represent? How is that represented in your food lists?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the general philosophy is that the healthiest diet is a plant-based diet, and a diet rich in fruits and vegetables. Whole grains are cool. Uh, and low in red meat. Mm-hmm. That's that's the overall big picture.
1: Oh, I just like, I can't, I don't, I never know how to navigate these conversations anymore because it's like, I, I there are so many um, doctors and um, practitioners. I mean, the schools of thought just vary so dramatically sometimes mm-hmm. where I'm like, you know, I talk to a lot of functional medicine doctors or Chinese medicine, uh, doctors, acupuncturists, that sort of world. And it's so much about not just like meat, but it's like specifically red meat, you know? And, you know, usually depending on the person, but I I would say more often than not, they would like strongly suggest, like I was like urged to eat red meat. And I, you know, I'm like a former like raw foodist. So it was a bit of a, a crazy concept for me, but, yeah so to to your point Erica it's like you know even in this book it's just it's very confusing because now my my like most recent knowledge and even in my day-to-day practice like you know for example on the no list in 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 the book is coconut oil and i just i like eat like it's on my body it's in my body <laughs> like, yeah. i eat a spoonful of it yeah, every first.
0: No, um, so, yeah yeah so no. coconut oil we can talk about specifically is on on the no list for two reasons you can put it on your body that's okay uh, in your body is different The the number one reason is when mike Royzen worked at the nih as a as a uh, young scientist they used coconut oil to create models of alzheimer's and animals Mm-hmm. And so he, it causes it in his work in the past, it caused inflammation in the brain that used it very specifically for that. And so he, based on that, doesn't believe it's uh, a good choice. Mm-hmm. We also, you know, it's a, it's a saturated fat. I know you'll probably hear lots of different things, obviously about saturated fats. Uh, it's an atom, it's a plant based saturated fat. So maybe it's better for you than an animal saturated fat. If you decide that you believe that saturated fats aren't good for you, but, um, you know, we, we believe there's a lot of better choice. Again, the main thing is this inflammation and what Mike Royzen's done. And, you know, a lot of this, you know, deciding what to eat should be, we think based on, you know, strong uh, epidemiological literature. I know some people don't like it, but I'm an epidemiologist, so I'm, I am have nothing wrong with it. And, you know, looking at traditional diets. And we know that from, you know, the blue zones and the healthiest people around the world, they eat olive oil uh, and not coconut oil. Mm-hmm. They eat a mostly plant-based diet. And Traditionally, they eat more like we're suggesting, they eat the when way, or eat, eat with the sun. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a lot of fads out there, a lot of people who are trying to sell something, gain notoriety, and, that, and you know when you have something new, that helps with that. You, you brought up lectins before. I, I could talk for a lot about that. You know, mm-hmm. the most traditional diets and the healthiest diets are all plant-based diets, bean-based diets.: Yeah, so, lectins.: So uh, I, you know, maybe there are probably some people who are sensitive to those things. And they'll realize that in their body and they shouldn't do it. But for a population, that's not good advice. Right.
1: That's what I was going to say. I mean, to some degree, I feel like all of this is is a guideline. But then we... I mean, we certainly, both Zoe and myself, are constantly preaching the gospel of like, you have to do what works for you. I have no issue with lectins and I love tomatoes. She's completely the opposite. And it's just one of those things that you're not going to find out until you actually try. But that being said, you know, the coconut oil thing was definitely a question for me. And also... Like you guys seem to be kind of neutral on gluten, right? Because even though that, I mean, it seems it seems kind of across the board. It does really there's a connection to inflammation, but that's not necessarily something that you're concerned with.
0: I mean, I think uh, wheat is a very traditional food uh, been eaten forever. You know, uh, are there changes in it? Are there sort of modern wheats that are less good for you? Perhaps that's why, you know, traditional whole grains, uh, ancient grains would be my my choice. But again, I think that's a personal thing. I think there's, I mean, I eat lots and lots of bread uh, and pasta. It's my favorite foods and it's fine for me. If you, there are people who are sensitive to glutens and, uh, they can avoid them. okay.
1: Okay. Egg yolks. Talk to me. Yes.
0: Oh, this is, this is, a I think, a controversial thing in the book. So knew it was come and this is based on literature that comes out of the Cleveland Clinic. So there is a substance called um, TMAO. And TMAO is an inflammatory substance in your body. It's associated with uh, platelet aggregation, so um, plaques and heart attacks, basically. And, and also it's associated with cancer. And TMAO is made uh, in your body, basically, when you're... Uh, microbiome is exposed to certain types of amino acids or proteins, they convert those to something called TMA, which then your liver converts to TMAO. Right? And the studies of the Cleveland Clinic have showed that vegetarians in general have very low levels of TMAO in their blood and meat eaters have higher levels. And when you have these crazy studies, which I don't understand how they actually pulled them off, but they got vegetarians to become meat eaters to do this study And show that they can change their microbiome and get them to create more TMAO. And uh, egg yolks are a food that's rich in the precursors to TMAO. And so that's why we uh, have them on the sort of don't eat so often list. But if you, you know, again, I think the science here is going to change. When you talk to people who do the TMAO um, research, not not everyone will make a lot of TMAO in response to egg yolks. And there'll probably be a blood test in the not too distant future where you can find out if you're one of them. So Mike Royzen will never eat an egg yolk. Okay.
1: Well, I cannot wait to talk to him because I cooked I cooked eggs in coconut oil for my daughter. Today. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you guys are gonna
0: have quite the conversation.
1: Mike
0: Mike doesn't hold back about how he feels. <laughs>
1: Damn. Okay. I also will preface all this with I come from blue zone uh uh background here. I got the. I got the. Uh, my dad's from a blue zone. Okay. So maybe I have. I, I need to be tested for something. Maybe. There's something.
0: <laughs> Where, is he, Where is he from?
1: Uh, Icaria, I agree.
0: Okay. Oh wow. wow, cool.
1: Yeah, oh. big one, big blue zone. Yeah, that's a That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what they they eat. Kind of late there, and they drink some red wine. They drink a lot, and there's a lot of wine. There's also a lot of, A lot of chicken. There's a lot of egg action.
0: Like Oat, Beans. They ate a lot of beans, though, don't they? Yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of beans, a lot of walnuts. Anyway. Our our favorite food? Um, your favorite food? Well, I'm going to take, yeah. I'm going to challenge I'm you on that it. because according to the book, one of your favorite foods is cheese.
0: And my personal I'm favorite food.
1: food. Yes. Yeah. Me too.
0: Yes. yes I love okay, cheese. Okay. So, let's oh, talk also, about
1: that. sorry. Wait. Let me just say one more thing about my Greek heritage. <laughs> um, largest consumption of cheese in the world. Which country? Greece. Greece. Greece, wow, Greece, all that feta. Anyway, continue.
0: Again, uh, I think uh, cheese is sort of the in America, anyways, the number one source or one of the highest sources of saturated fat. People eat too much cheese. I love cheese, but uh, I try to eat really. I have friends who make cheese, so I try to eat like you know really good cheese and not eat too much of it. I think we, um, you know, Mike again will never eat cheese. We recommend limiting cheese, but uh, I think
1: is some... there a difference in terms of like lactose, high lactose, like sheep versus cow? Is there any... Is there well, any...
0: so real cheese should... Almost no cheese should have lactose in it because when you make cheese, the it's a fermented dairy product, right? So the only dairy products that should really have lactose are fresh, fresh milk. If you have yogurt, there should be almost no lactose. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we recommend butter, but butter has almost no lactose and cheese has almost no lactose because it's all been fermented away by the bacteria. Right. So I, I always think that fermented dairy foods... Are the best choice if you are going to eat dairy right. rather than than fresh dairy. It's a more again a more traditional way of of eating dairy. Also more delicious, <laughs> if we're being honest. I mean, I agree, but. <laughs> I but we... walnuts are one of my newer favorite oh, foods. Oh yeah, I, Let's go back to I walnuts. Mean, walnuts. Walnuts are are super healthy nut. They've got omega threes in them. They've got healthy fat. These healthy fats, which are the omega threes, they've got protein. They've got fiber, and you know what? When you when you start cutting sugar out of your life, walnuts actually taste kind of sweet mm-hmm. um, and they really go well in a lot of different dishes. I mean, in the cookbook, we, I included walnuts in a lot of the recipes that i that I created um, so
1: they're also good for because back in the day when you know we were in doing a raw food program we had a juice company and there was a food component their walnuts we used a lot to make um like nut meat essentially they blend up really well because there's so much oil that i feel like they swap in to meat-free recipes as like a really good like you know
0: yeah Yeah, i mean i use them in a a book we have a lot of like pesto kind of uh Mm -hmm. sauces there's walnuts and all of those Mm -hmm. walnuts are, are great when we talk about what what you should eat let me just tell you one other sort of Principle and not a rule, we don't like to say rules, but these ideas is that we say, and it's kind of one of the big reasons for the cookbook, is we say, don't stereotype food. And that's getting back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, I think, is that what, you know, we as a society, we think, okay, breakfast is cereal and pastries and dinner is salmon and avocados, right? But that's a very cultural thing. In other societies, they don't believe that. Same thing, like in Japan, they'll eat salmon for breakfast. Mm-hmm. So when we say don't stereotype food, because we're suggesting you eat more early and less later, we're basically suggesting you eat your breakfast, I mean, your, excuse me, eat your dinner for breakfast. Mm-hmm. So I'll typically eat cold pasta and broccoli for breakfast, or Mike will have a salmon burger for breakfast. Those are what people might have eaten for dinner, but they're right. just as good for breakfast. And the book is kind of one of the reasons for the book is to give people lots of ideas. Sure. But here's all the kinds of things you could be eating for breakfast with these plant-based uh, uh, dishes that are delicious any time of day, but certainly good in the morning.
1: Right. Well, and conversely, I think breakfast for dinner is highly underrated. <laughs> right. I just want to get your take on two other foods. Okay. Nightshades, because I stereotype and hate them; they're horrible. But what, what do you? Do you have any? Again, ideas? I mean, I
0: think if Not... you're sensitive to nightshades, then you shouldn't eat them. Yeah. Uh, I love them. But no studies uh, about, you know, how I might be right this theory. <laughs> not, not that I know. I think it's going to be a very per- a personal, uh, personal, unique biological thing to you. And I mean, to yeah. a lot of people. But, um, you know, this is my favorite time of year when the nightshades are out in full force. I
1: mean, also high nightshade consumption in Greece, by the way. That's true. That is true. I mean, tomatoes, at least. There's yes. this, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm looking through your book right now. I don't mean to be looking down, but I'm looking at some of these recipes. Is there, um, do you have any opinion on our favorite, our favorite kingdom, which would be the fungi kingdom? Mushrooms? Where do you stand?
0: Yeah, I love mushrooms. There's a lot of mushroom recipes in the book. There's a cool pasta dish in there, which is like a take on uh, Bucatini Amatriciana. Mm. Which is oh, uh, say that
1: again?
0: <laughs> Bucatini alla amatriciana, right? It's one of the yeah. famous dishes from Amatrice area outside of Rome, which is yeah. traditionally made with guanciale, which is a pork jowl, and a lot uh, of onions and tomatoes. Yeah, the cheeks. <laughs> and um, so we have a sort of a version where we replace the guanciale with shiitake mushrooms, mm-hmm. which I didn't think would work at first. But uh, our co-author Jimmy told me, that, you know, you could really develop a lot of umami from a shiitake and the dish is actually really really good
1: Uh, and
0: not quite the same but uh pretty pretty good replica
1: all right i'll check that out yeah
0: Yeah. there's a couple other mushroom-based recipes in there so definitely a big fan of mushrooms mushrooms have uh they're good for your immune system right they're good for lots of reasons
1: yes we have a mushroom uh company that we are putting out into the world and it's all Promoting immunity and promoting, you know, mental clarity and cognitive function and calm and all that fun stuff. So functional and functional yeah, functional mushroom extracts in, oh. in various forms. So we will send you some product. Yeah. All right, cool. Are you a latte drinker? Uh
0: no, you know what? So coffee, right, oh. is um, nope. Mike's one of Mike's favorite foods. He drinks Yay. somewhere. You ask him about it. He drinks twelve or thirteen cups of coffee a day uh oh. <laughs> but I don't drink any, so drink he tea? he drinks mine.
1: <laughs> why does so much get yeah. some coffee free lattes, so oh, okay. we'll make and send you the ones that don't have coffee all right
0: sounds good does he do it for any specific reason or it's just he just yeah well, he he uh, he'll tell you all about it for longevity oh, okay're okay, okay. talk about it spoiler alert, Zoe <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> also he has a bit of an di- addictive personality, so. Yeah, yeah, we're
1: gonna get it. He, <laughs> Talk about his cocaine habit as well.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Once upon a time, you know, he used to drink twenty-three sodas a day. Yeah, That's like and Bill Gates. He like lives on diet coke. Yeah. So Mike used to be okay. like that, and uh, the doctor I got him to quit, and maybe ten years ago, or he'll, he'll he can tell you that story too. It's uh, it's amazing, but he switched over to coffee now,
1: <laughs> which is marginally improvement, but
0: yeah, no big improvement over that.
1: Big um, okay. Um, awesome. Well, this is super. Uh, this is a great book, I have to say. It's great. very beautiful too. The pictures, the photography, is gorgeous. Oh yeah,
0: thanks. Yeah, we spent a lot of time picking a photographer, thinking about what those dishes would look like because you know we eat with our eyes as well yeah. as our our mouths. You know, very I'll good. tell you, writing do the cookbook. I wrote about half the recipes. Chef Jim Perko did about the other half. I love to cook. It's my passion but writing cookbook was the hardest thing I ever did in my life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. you got a good one here. Um, we'll make sure and let everybody know about it. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super interesting.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at htwpodcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.